Look, tax law is changing all the time and it's not just a change when the government passes new legislation or there's a, a new budget. There's cases that go through the courts or through tribunals that then influence on how the ATO looks at things. So it's a very fluid, dynamic system that we have. So it's really important to stay on top of it. You're listening to the She Renovates podcast. You're listening to She Renovates, the podcast for women who want to renovate to create an income and a life they love. So hello, everyone. Welcome. We're back with another episode of She Renovates. And today I have Brian Goodridge. So Brian has been our accountant and since he started business, from what I can see, I did a bit of research today before this episode and discovered that we have a concurrent journey. So he started his business in 2013 after spending way too much time complaining to his wife about how accounting practices should be run. And apparently she called his bluff and threw down the gauntlet and said, either start up your own business or stop complaining. And so obviously the rest is history. And basically Brian's claim to fame is he's not your average number cruncher and that he looks for creative but legal solutions to tax problems. And that's what we love. And we were just commenting on the fact that the absence of the pinstripe suit, which we're very happy about um, <laughs> because... Yeah, it's very consistent with the renovating theme. So welcome, Brian. Thanks, Mo, That was a lovely introduction. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the value of having a property-specific accountant to not just to manage your tax but also to manage your level of risk. And so I'm just wondering, like, I know why I think it's important, but I'm curious what your view is on the idea of seeking out someone that's very specifically experienced in property. I think it's important because having gone through renovations myself and at the moment we're in the process, the early stages of knocking a house down and rebuilding it, I have a fair idea of what renovators go through and and I can, yeah, I feel their pain. I, I can talk to them on their level and I know other accountants have never done it before and they've got no idea what's involved so any advice they give is kind of a, a theoretical textbook kind of advice rather than a practical I get where you're coming from and this is how we've got to do it. Yeah I absolutely agree with that because you know I think with any business decision and you've got to realise that renovating is a business having that level of insight into the activity I think is very valuable but also tax law is quite complex and do you find that there are a lot of changes with the law that relates to any business but particularly to property? Look tax law is changing all the time and it's not just a change when the government passes new legislation or there's a, a new budget there's cases that go through the courts or through tribunals that then influence on how the ATO looks at things. So it's a very fluid, dynamic system that we have. So it's really important to stay on top of it. And I know if you're not looking at a particular area on a regular basis, it's so easy to not know what you, what you need to be looking at. Yeah, and I know that we have had times where I've actually said to you, you know, one of our students, tax accountants, 
advise them this and I don't think it's right. And and you come back and, and confirmed absolutely it's not right. And that's just really a function of just working with someone that's not up to date with what the go is. Would you agree? Oh, it's funny you say that, Bernard. I think it was last week I had a call from one of your students and they'd set up the structure and the accountant told them they needed to register for GST, which they absolutely didn't need to do. So all it was going to do was cause them headaches and doing more basses and and pay GST that shouldn't have been paid. Yeah, absolutely. And let's actually let's move into that because that's a, a pretty poignant issue with renovating the GST issue. Do you want to talk to when GST really becomes a something that you need to take take action around? Yeah, this is a real sting in the tail because when you go to renovate, you don't think about GST issues, you think about, you know, maybe capital gains tax issues or income tax issues, but no one ever thinks about GST because, you know, it's, it's residential property and there's no GST on residential property is what yeah. people think. But there's a, a tax ruling, 2003 slash 3, and it goes through about what makes a property a new residential property for GST purposes because the GST Act says that a new residential property is subject to GST. So everyone will say, that's fine, I'm buying second-hand property and I'm renovating it, so we don't have to worry about this while you're talking about it. However, in this tax ruling, the ATO comes out and they say, if you do a substantial renovation on a residential property, it becomes a new residential property and therefore it's subject to GST when you sell it. And it also, in the legislation, has that a residential property is a new residential property for five years after it's built. So if we do a renovation and it's of a scale big enough to be a substantial renovation, we've got ourselves a situation where when we sell it, that property is subject to GST. If we decide to keep it and rent it out, it could still be subject to GST if we sell it within the next five years. And with that comes a whole lot of record-keeping issues that we've never had to think about and if you're not on top of it at the very start, chances are you're not going to keep the records and you're going to end up in a bit of a hole at the end of the process. Exactly, yeah. So if you sell a house, let's say you've done a major reno and let's say you've added a floor and you've done this to make a profit and you sell it, how much of that sale price will you pay in GST? Okay, so this is the interesting part. It's... It, the answer is it depends. So we need to look at whether we can use the margin scheme to apply on the GST. And if we can, it means we're only charging GST on the margin between what we bought it for and what we sold it for. If we can't use the margin scheme, we're using the whole value of what we sold it for to work out how much GST we're charging in the price. And, and keep in mind, the purchaser can't claim the GST credits so if we sell a house for a million dollars, we don't say, oh, it's a million dollars plus mm. GST because the buyer's just going to walk away. It's a million dollars including GST, mm. which eats into our profit. So yep. at the start of the project, we need to know, is it going to be a substantial renovation or not? So we can factor that into our budget. And if it is, we need to go through the process to see if we can use the margin scheme and reduce how much GST we yep. have to charge. Keep in mind, if we if we do have to charge GST, we can claim the GST and all the inputs. So it doesn't mean that we're going to lose, you know, one eleventh mm. of our profit, 
but it's still an extra cost that we have yeah, to Yeah, so I always think that, and this is my layperson's way of looking at it, if you're able to claim the GST imports and you're able to utilise the margin scheme, you should, in essence, be able to just pay GST on the profit. Does that make sense or is that misleading? Oh, look, I probably want to do a bit more of a detailed calculation yeah. on that. You might you might find that the the GST on what you're claiming, what you're having to pay, comes out to be reasonably close, yeah. depending on how successful you are with yeah. adding yeah. value to the property. And so, I guess the whole scenario really points to the value of having a working relationship with your property accountant. You can't come in after you've sold the property and say, oh, my gosh, I've got to pay GST. What can we do to minimise it? Because there's not a whole lot you can do once you get to that point, is there? Oh, look, not just with GST. There's so many discussions I've had over the years where someone said I've done this and I just sort of my heart drops because it's past the time when we can do anything and yeah. tax is what yeah. the tax is. So... It's really important before we do the project that we plan through how it's going to work from a tax point of view. Yeah. So which brings me to the next question. Are there any renovations that you can't claim? Let's say you're renovating as a business. We assume that everything that we do to that property, the cost of materials and labour, is tax deductible. Is there anything that we can't claim? Okay, so... Very good point you've made there, Bernadette. So we're looking at this yeah. as renovating as a business, not renovating a property yes. for a capital gain. So in terms of the business, we can claim pretty much everything. However, things like let's say we decided we we're going to take all our tradesmen out for lunch or we we're going to have, you know, uh, business lunches, that sort of thing, that falls under, under entertainment. And so then there's separate rules on that and we can... We can't claim it, or if we want to claim it, we've got to pay fringe benefits tax. And maybe even if we don't want to claim it, we still have to pay fringe benefits tax depending on how much money we've spent and frequency and that sort of thing. So there are things that come into it. If as part of the renovation we've paid some personal things out of it, we can't claim that. And the funny thing is it depends on whether it's a a company or an entity doing the business or a sole trader yes yeah, exactly which i guess is something that you need to set up before you get going yeah so often when i talk to people they're new to renovating and i i usually say to them look do one in your own name first because i want to make sure that you like it and you're successful in it before we set up a structure because if we set up a structure there's a few thousand dollars worth of expense in setting it up there's a few thousand dollars worth of expense in administering it and there's a cost to wind it up if you don't want to do it anymore. So if you only do one property and decide it's not for you, I don't want you to have to go through that expense. Uh, but then I've got people who say, no, no, I've done it before, I love it, this is what I'm doing, or people have done their one and they're happy with it. So then we set up a structure that suits yeah. their situation. And that's the really important part. It has to be custom-tailored to each person's situation. What's, what are the variables? Okay, so the variables are the risk. So if you've got, um, say, an individual doing it, they've got a different risk profile to a couple who's doing it who've got a different risk profile to a group of people who's doing it. And then you've got to look at individually what are the individual risk profiles. So is the people that are involved, how many of those have their own business? Because as soon as you've got a business, 
there's a higher level of risk that you face than someone who's just an employee. And then we look at it from a tax side of view and, okay, what sort of income outside of this business is everyone earning? How do we want to divvy the profits up? Is there a, a way we need to look at to make it more tax effective? Yeah. I've got high income. And so that sort of came into play. So you, as you know, we're, we're doing this class project at the moment. So we've got 14 um, partners in it. And... And so, you know, like one of the things that each of the members needed to look at is how they would invest in that project, in what entity, because obviously if you're investing in your own name and you add additional income to it, obviously you're going to add that on top of your income and, ha- and pay a higher tax rate. So, yeah, so thinking exactly. about what the outcome's going to be and, and being able to improve your situation because we all love paying tax. Oh, we do. It's it's the favorite. It's everyone's favorite part of you when they come and oh, see me. I'll tell them what their yeah, tax bill's going to be. Well, well, the other thing, the other thing, Bernadette, the way I look at it is that okay, we've got to, all got to pay a certain amount of tax. Uh, it's just the way the system's set up. But what we want to do is minimize it as much as possible because if you think about it, as on a uh, compound interest type principle, if we have more money coming out of our first project to go into our second project, then we can probably make more money and then have more to go into the third and so forth. And so by the time we've done the fifth or sixth project, we've got a lot more money in our pocket than if we had paid a bit more tax at the start and had less money going through. Absolutely. Uh, I love that idea. Um, Let's get on to investment properties because I this came up yesterday and it drives me nuts. The whole idea of having properties to reduce your tax. <laughs> and, yep. and I heard I was listening to a podcast yesterday and it talked about a depreciation benefit. Now, which is yep. basically, you know, a benefit for things being worthless which really is crazy. So one of the ways with investment properties that we reduce the um, tax we pay is with the depreciation or the deductions. And so recently there was a change, or a couple of years ago now, there was a change in the law around what you could claim with partner equipment. And so now renovators can still claim plant equipment, is that correct? Renovators are fine. So the rule changed changed, uh, I think it was four years ago, what was happening is people would have a rental property, they'd uh, maybe replace the oven, for example, and they'd depreciate that. Then they'd sell the property and the new owner would get a quantity surveyor to a report and they'd say, oh, yeah, the oven's worth whatever, and they'd depreciate that. And the government worked out that it was essentially getting claimed twice and they didn't like that. So they, they basically come out and said, okay, unless you've specifically paid for that piece of plant equipment brand new, you can't claim any depreciation on it. So now when you buy uh, a house to rent out and you get your depreciation report, the quantity surveyor will ignore all the plant equipment because you haven't purchased that brand new. With a renovator, they're they're running a business. So part of their business is to put in that new oven or the new dishwasher, whatever it is. And so uh, on one hand, it's brand new, so it meets the law anyway. Second part is it's part of their business, so it's fine. and do they do they need is that calculated on like is that factored in based on the invoices or the receipts or how is that done? Yes, well, 
a quantity survey, if they come in after the fact and they don't have that information, they'll just look at, okay, that's a, a Westinghouse oven and, and they're usually worth about this much money and so the ATO has it depreciating over eight years, yeah. so this is what you get. If you've got all your receipts, then we can just calculate it anyway on the ATO rates. Can I just go back to something you said before, Bernadette, about having yeah. rental properties? I get this question all the time from people saying, they say, I've got a tax problem, I need to buy a rental property. And what I explain to them every single time, I'm just feeling about depreciation for a moment, if year on year your rent property is fixing your tax problem, inverted commas, that means you're losing money. So you've got your highest marginal tax rate in Medicare levy, it's 47%. So if, if we have a negative year of $10,000, we'll get $4,700 back in our tax. We've got $5,300 that we've lost, it's gone. And unless the capital value of the property is going up by more than that, and significantly more than that because there's tax and selling costs when you sell it, then we're actually behind. And a lot of people say, oh, that's fine, property never goes mm. down in value. Well, I hate to say it, but we've got clients that five, six years ago bought properties in mining towns in Queensland and they've got negative equity because the properties do go down. So never, ever, ever do something just for a tax purpose because it usually comes back to bite you from a, a reality cash flow wealth perspective. Look, I really agree. I think, like I know investors, people like Chris Gray, who that's that's their thing, but they're very sophisticated investors, one, and two, they only ever buy in absolute blue chip areas and there's the science to it. But most of the people that I hear talking about that are people that have been brainwashed by these so-called gurus who talk about building wealth on the back of the tax um, tax mm. benefits. And what they're doing is selling cookie cutter um, off the plan house and land packages that are overpriced to bilio and their motivation is around the huge commissions and it's not around looking after their clients. Oh, 100%. Gross generalisation, but I've seen it so many times it's, it's scary. Yeah. 100%. And, look, I don't have a problem with having rent properties. I think any form of investment, as long as you've got a plan around, you've done your research, is good. But you're 100% right. I, I went to a, a property spiritual seminar about five years ago and they had the they were doing uh, apartments in Brisbane in Fortitude Valley and they had the the financial planner up there and he, he says, oh, you know, do you think it's reasonable for a, a property to go up in value by whatever the percentage was every year? And everyone said, oh, yeah, that sounds fine. He goes, well, even if it only went up by, by this amount, you know, in seven years you've doubled your money and you can sell it and you can use that to buy as a deposit to buy two or three and then it would go up in seven years and, and, and so on. And everyone, you know, oh, wow, I'm going to be a multimillionaire. And I know some people that bought properties on the back of that seminar and these are off-the-plan properties, so it took three to four years for them to be built. And guess what happened when they were built, Bernadette? They were worth less than they paid. The bank's valuation didn't come through and they all had to tip more money in there to sell oh, the properties. Oh, God. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think and when it comes to building wealth, the people who make the most amount of money are the people doing things in areas that other people aren't and they're doing their research. 
So if you're thinking you're going to get rich by going to a seminar and having someone else do all the work and you don't have to do anything, all you're doing is making other people rich. You might make a little bit of money, but you're not going to make anywhere near the sort of money you would if you proactively do the work yourself. Absolutely. And for some reason, I think there's two things about that. One of them is that I think it's, uh, you know, I'm calling it laziness, but being time poor and knowing you need to do something. And the other thing is mindset, thinking that you, they can't get their head around it. And there's, yeah, and what really gets me is that that someone will go to one of these seminars and quite happily sign the dotted line to hand over two fifty, half a million dollars, and yet won't spend five thousand dollars on a education program. So they would rather go and trust a, and I just think it's crazy. Anyhow, look, the most value, the most value for money you ever get is spending money on your education, yep. not spending money on getting people to do things yeah. for you. Oh, look, and, yeah, I agree. Mm. Yeah, and you've got, to, you've got to understand, if you're spending money to get someone to do something for you, you've got to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, yeah. and you've got, to, you've got to manage what they're doing to make sure they're doing the right thing Absolutely. for you. Because as soon as you stop managing and you abdicate it, then forget yeah. about it. So the whole idea of passive income is, is a furphy. Yeah. Oh, look, you, you can achieve it, but um, you need to work at it. So I, I've got some clients, they they don't like residential property at all. They find it all too hard in terms of managing tenants and the rules that favour tenants. So they've got, I think they've got four or five commercial properties now and they've worked hard in their business. they made some good money and they don't owe very much on their commercial properties. So they've got a really good passive yeah. income. But they've had to work in other areas before they get the money yeah. to do that. I guess my view is that you can't just set and forget. And, like, I even think with those mining towns, well, I, I think buying in a mining town really contravenes the first rule of investing. Buying in a single industry area is high risk. But the second thing is most, if they had have monitored the market, would have been able to get out and before the you know, before it nosedive, but, but setting and forgetting and not keeping an eye on it is dangerous. It is. And I, I sit here all high and mighty saying that, you know, they're silly to have done it. Back probably 10 years ago, I was looking at properties and I found one in Western Australia. It was, I think it was 750000 It was $1,500 a week rent. And I said to my wife, Laura, hey, look how good this one is. And she whacked me over the back of the head and said, you idiot, it's in a mining town. There's only one industry. What happens if the industry shuts? And so I, I fortunately learnt my lesson very cheaply with just a, a sore head rather than losing a lot of money. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, uh, I think that I had a similar experience, but it actually turned out to be a good experience in that, you know, with that block that we just recently sold, the planning laws changed and I'd been, you know, asleep at the wheel and but it just happened that I was actually able to turn those around and you know, and make a profit out of it, but it could have been the other way around. So, you know, I think everyone's guilty of it at some stage, but you just really, yeah, need to keep your eyes peeled. Well, the important thing is you, instead of just accepting that you could lose money, you practically went out there and found a solution yeah. to the problem 
And that's what they say. Finding solutions to problems makes money. Yeah. And that's what yeah. you So, well, you know, the conversation's taken a few um, twists and turns. Is there anything else that, anything that we should be really alerting renovators to right now? What would be, if you were going to say to someone, let's say not an absolute newbie because I know what your advice to them would be, but someone that had come to you that was renovating and was wanting to take it up a level, what would be the things that um, they would need to look out for in terms of asset protection and tax minimizations? You know, it's sort of the three key things that you would say to them. Yeah, so what I, I well, first thing I do when we talk about this, I, I get a piece of paper, blank piece of A4 paper, and I draw a line down the middle of it. And on one side, I have assets, and on the other side, I put the heading risk. And I say to them, what we want to do is have it so that all the assets and all the risk are separated. And that way, if something goes wrong on the risk side, and, and this is usually a couple I'm talking to, if it's an individual, it makes it much harder to do. So a couple, one person has all the risk, one person controls or owns all the assets. And I say, if the worst thing happens and everything just collapses and the person with the risk goes bankrupt, you still get to come home to the house you've been living in. You've got your whatever rental properties and other assets you've got because that's all controlled by the other person. So we look at what they've got currently and look at how to split it going forward. So one person has the risk and one person has all the assets. And that's that's from the the risk protection yeah. point of view. Then we look at setting up structures and everything else around that. From a tax minimization point of view, we look at the whole the whole picture of where their income's coming from. They've got other jobs and other investments and so forth. And then we have a look at where we want to push profits out to. So, for example, if they've got kids at university not earning much money, that's a great opportunity for us to have a trust that distributes profits to those kids and gives their lower tax rates yep. while they're studying. So it's just about looking at the whole picture to see where, where things can go. And... Excuse me, and it's really, really important that they've got a clear idea in the head where they want to go to, and who in their their circle they want to be able to distribute money to, okay. if at all. That's very um, wise advice. Now, the last thing I want to tell you is, what's the scariest thing you've seen, tax wise or asset protection wise? Okay, I think the scariest thing comes back to the story I tell whenever I do the presentation in your class. If you're doing business with other people, you need to have an agreement in place about essentially that governs how disputes are resolved, if someone wants to get out, how that's managed, all that sort of thing. Because I years ago when I first started, when I, probably my very first client was a real estate agency. It was going fine. It was a bloke and his best mate. Everything was fine. They ended up bringing in the bloke's cousin. Still, still went okay. Then the guy brought his girlfriend into it. Within two months, the whole thing imploded because of the girlfriend and they had no shareholders agreement in place. So they were they put it into liquidation and they were selling the book of, of rent roll, the rent roll book. And I said to one of the, the partners, look, you know, if you just took it out, if you hadn't put it in liquidation for the liquidator to sell the rent roll, you had to sell the rent roll separately, you guys would have walked away with a lot more money. And he said to me, well, yeah, but I'm richer than the other guys and they've really upset me, so I just want to see them lose as much money as possible. 
if they had have had an agreement in place, the other guys could have stopped that from happening and they could have all walked away several hundred thousand dollars yeah. better off okay. than what they did. Yeah. Uh, the, and the other one I saw, which which is really important too, is two guys, and I don't feel sorry for them because they were both accountants before they started mortgage broking, so they should have known better. They didn't have an agreement. One wanted to get out of the business and the other guy basically wouldn't let him out of the business, so he was stuck. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that that's the scariest part, not having that stuff in place. And it's an insurance policy, so it might cost a couple of thousand dollars to have it, but that's your insurance policy if something goes wrong that might save you several hundred thousand later on. Absolutely. And that's I guess the thing is that's relevant to something that we're doing a lot of, which is joint ventures. Exactly. That's really, really important for joint ventures. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, thank you. I think that's been quite a juicy episode, lots of... Uh, actionable um, information in there. So um, how would you like people to contact you if they were wanting to have a further conversation? Well, I think if you can post up the link, uh, Bernadette, that has the the calendar link for the 15-minute calls, complimentary calls, they can book into my calendar and I'm happy to talk to everybody and answer any questions that they've got. Okay. Well, that's an awesome offer. So thank you for that. Thank you for coming on the um, podcast and, yeah, that's it. My pleasure. Thanks, Bernadette. (laughs) You're very welcome. Hi, Bernadette. It's Ali in Canberra. Hi, Bernadette. My name's Charlie. Hi, Bernadette. It's Liz here. Hi, Bernadette. This is James from Bondi in Sydney. I've got a question I'd like to ask. I have a question. I just have a question for you. Interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks again for the show. Love it. As you know, I love to hear from you and get your Renault questions. If you've got a question about anything Renault related, please visit our website and click the Ask Bernadette button. Now, here is a question from Odette. Hi, Bernadette. It's Odette from Rhodes. My question is, when you're new to renovating and are setting a budget, how do you know how much to allocate to each section of the budget? Other than trading quotes, is there a way to gauge the right amount of budget for each subsection, such as rendering, tiles, etc. Okay, Odette, pricing your project will be hardest on your first project. It gets easier as you go along. And the main reason being is that prices are very, like, location-specific. So what I pay for my trades in Sydney will be different to what someone in Adelaide will pay. And so getting a sense of what you need to budget, a lot of that comes with experience. However, you do need to sort it out for your first project. Now, as you mentioned, getting trade quotes is the most accurate way to, to get your pricing, but often you don't have the time in order to achieve that. So let's um, talk about some ways of working around it. So materials, you should be able to get directly from the suppliers. So just make up your list and get get your quotes or go online. I, I do that with every job. I really make my lists before I even buy the property and work out what my materials are going to cost. But it's the trade prices that vary quite dramatically. Well, actually, since COVID, the material, particularly timber, has been 
problematic and availability has also been problematic. But anyhow, aside from that, trade prices. And so um, one thing I could suggest is that you quantify your scopes of work. So you're really clear about how many of this and how many of that. So it makes it really quick for your trade to give you a a guide of what the the package of work will cost. The other thing you can network with other renovators and investors in the area to share information about what they pay for their trades. The other thing you could do is actually refer to a guide, a couple I can think of. One is the Archicenter produces a fairly basic cost guide annually and also Rawlinson's produce a very comprehensive cost cost guide they you know like everything to do with pricing they're they're a little bit challenging to work out but as renovators we're good at problem solving so there are a couple of areas that you can go to for information about prices if you want to meet up with a group of savvy renovating I shouldn't say it's all women because it's not. Savvy renovators, I'll say. Come over and join She Renovates. It's completely free Facebook group and it is growing at the rate of knots. We hit a thousand members just recently and now it seems to have picked up momentum. And so they are all savvy renovating women and men that are working their little hearts out to live a better life through renovating. Join if you're not already a member, and then ask, comment, and do whatever you would like to do in order to further your renovation journey. And that's it for me today. So I'll see you next week. This is the She Renovates podcast. To discover how to harness the power of renovating, check out theschoolofrenovating.com.